welcome to the Scroll West podcast. This episode focuses on local and community radio. We have a great history of radio involvement here in the West and indeed throughout the country in general. It is alleged that the first broadcast in Ireland goes back to the 24th of April 1916 when a transmission was delivered by the Easter Rising leaders from the GPO. Irish radio has come a long way in the last 100 years, since we first started making radio waves. Later we hear about Marconi and how he planted his vision here in a bog in Connemara. This may seem like ancient history to many of you. Even the first radio types are now confined to history. Today we can listen to almost any channel anywhere in the world on various devices. Not only that, but the design, composition, use and application of the radio is endless. I'm thinking of Wi-Fi radio, internet radio, clock radio, satellite radio, battery, non-battery operated, and that's just to mention a very few. With the retrotype transistor, always a popular aesthetic choice. But there was a time when there was no choice. There was one type model only. The radio was the size of a cupboard, had two large batteries connected by cables from the outside of the device. Lead-acid batteries, invented in 1859, referred to as wet batteries, and these were used for radio power in many households right up to the early 60s. Batteries were exchanged at the local shop every week for a charged battery. This was no easy task, bearing in mind that there were very few cars and zero public transport, especially here in the West. So a trek of up to three miles on badly surfaced roads could be endured to recover a charged battery, as well as carrying any shopping which was required. But people considered the radio to be an essential part of daily life and were willing to make sacrifices for that privilege. The radio had pride of place in every home, mainly in the kitchen, and it most definitely was not portable. There were three means of communication, newspapers, post delivery service and the radio. Thankfully, even with all our advancement in technology, this mode of media communication is still popular here in Ireland and most especially in the west of Ireland. Up to the 1980s, Radio Erin, which was established in 1932, moving on from Radio Athlone, was the only channel available. Used mainly for news, national and international, weather and shipping reports, political, religious commentary, with very little entertainment added. The late 80s saw the emergence of commercial radio, and with that, many local pirate stations sprang up. A great number of our local radio stations have strong roots going back to the pirate days. Our fascination and interest in all things radio has to be attributed to one man, the godfather of radio, Marconi. The Irish-Italian who laid the groundwork for world radio communication from a bog right here in Connemara. Here to tell us all about Marconi, just a stone's throw from the original site, 
is Brindon O'Scannell from the Clifton and Connemara Heritage Society. Brindon also has the very interesting Great Outdoors programme on Connemara Community Radio. I suppose when we think about uh, Marconi, we think of generally kind of a young man doing the experiments with radio. Uh, everybody has this image of him living in his house in Italy and trying to send messages from one side of the room to the next and outside and across the hills and all of that. And his big aim, I suppose, was always to try and go farther. He knew that radio could literally go around the world. Uh, the signal could be, you know, go from whatever point you wanted to send it from to somewhere else. But it was just to get the equipment correct, I think. So he, as a very young man, started experimenting with all sorts of aspects of uh, signals and how they were going to work. And of course, the way Marconi used everybody else's work and adapted it to suit whatever he needed to himself. Um, his biggest backer, I suppose, was his mother, who really believed what he was doing. And she, of course, was one of the Jemison family, the whiskey people from Dublin, and collections to Enniscorthy and to Kildare in that area. But she kind of always pushed him to kind of continue on with his ideas. I don't think his father was quite as interesting, interested at the time. But um, she kind of said to him, look, I, you're wasting your time here initially. We're not getting any big support from anybody. Let's go over to Ireland and to England, where she had a lot of very wealthy connections. And of course, that's what he needed was money so that he could experiment and do all the things he needed to do. And Marconi, as a very young man, arrived over in England and started immediately trying to get people interested in supporting him. Now, he had a lot of support from his own family as such. So his uh, cousin was one of his uh, main supporters for a long, long time, but other people as well. But of course, his big trouble always was trying to get past the, uh, I suppose, the, the communications industry. So in the, in the case of England, it was the Post and Telegraphs who weren't really interested in pushing him, uh, getting him, you know, allowing him to do anything because they had the monopoly. But he kept pushing and pushing until he got what he wanted. And that was one thing I think you could say about him is that he had a very single mind himself. He Once he got an idea into his head, he went straight for it. And that was every evident in everything that he did, really, because when he, he started the experiments, he would travel around in different parts of the UK and to England, uh, sorry, in Ireland. He would go farther afield and eventually, of course, he started going across the Atlantic and trying to extend the signal farther and farther. And he always believed in what he was doing. I think that was one thing that was about him. But the big thing for him, of course, was to have a commercial success. Everything he was doing for up to the kind of 1910, that kind of time, was really kind of experimental. And he was doing an awful lot of different things that were all very interesting, but none of them were bringing a lot of money. And he knew that what he had to do was get the, the, the signal across the Atlantic so that he could actually beat the uh, cable system that was there, the, the undersea cable. And, of course, the nearest point to the United States of America to Canada was of course the west of Ireland so he came looking around throughout uh, the west he had small experimental stations down in Cork and in, in the north of Ireland they were shipping ones particularly but this wasn't what he was looking for and he picked up the site in Clifton and it's kind of hard to know why in one sense he came here but I think what he was looking for was direct access to the sea and to basically uh, Canada and the United States and he certainly had that where he picked here in Derry Gimla 
He also needed to have a place where he could bring all his equipment into. So we had a railway line coming from Dublin, Galway to Clifton. And of course, he could ship all the stuff he needed by that way. But he also had a relatively good port. So bigger stuff that needed to come in by ship could be brought out to Derry Gimel as well. It came to Clifton and then came by road. So his kind of vision brought him to this area here. And we have a wonderful site um, quite a number of hundreds of acres of bogland with the, the mountains surrounding us and looking out over the sea. And of course, they were all the things that he needed. He was going to have to produce his own electricity and for that he needed to have turf or some sort of a fuel. And the turf was there pretty much free for him to use. Um, he also had the mountains to block out other signals and then, as I say, he had the access to the sea. But he, he really was a person with a, a single vision. When he came to a place, he knew exactly what he wanted. And I think there's an amazing thing that with, uh, he came here in 1905 and started looking around and found this, this particular site at Derry Gimla and decided this was it. And by 1907, everything was up and running. So he'd put up a huge um, industrial complex, basically. You know, it's absolutely massive when you see the, the grounds of what was left there. I mean, there's no real uh, structures as such left, but there was plenty of evidence of them. And he'd all these people working for him. People came from England, all the engineers and all the radio operators were English or from, from Wales. But all the local people then were involved in turf cutting and the kind of donkey work as such. But he gave great employment. But everything was laid out. He had a little small railway line bringing the goods from the road all the way into the site. And then that railway continued out around through the bog so he could carry the turf to the site. So everything was planned in his head. And uh, I know a friend of mine who's an engineer was marvelling at the whole idea of this young man, and he was still relatively young when he he started all of this, literally designing the whole thing and having it up and running in two years. So Marconi, as I say, really had a, a flair for getting what he wanted. Um, fortunately, as I said, he still had he had money behind him, but at that stage the money was kind of running out, so this was really important that he was able to do this. So the site itself, as I say, is magnificent, uh, wonderful views, uh, really wide open spaces. But at that time, of course, buzz, a height of, of activity with people working literally 24-7 there, 365 days a year. The whole place was blocked off. You couldn't access it without permission from the office in London. Nobody else was allowed on site except the workers and people with proper passes. And this was, of course, to protect himself and his uh, his ideas, what he was working on, because he constantly had people trying to snoop and what he was doing so that they could kind of get a one game ahead of him but of course he was very protective of all of that as well and looked after patents so that they he actually had the rights to all of these so he was an amazing character he would come to Clifton on a regular basis we don't know exactly how often although his diaries give us a, a very good insight that he would have been here for kind of days and days at a time usually staying in very luxurious places we had a couple of quite fancy hotels around here the one thing i suppose you'd see when you read about marconi is that he liked the high life and uh, his travel across the atlantic which he did on a number of occasions every year he was actually constantly on on big ships but they were all first class and complete luxury and he liked that as aspect and when he was here he would have had his bit main engineers with him and his main researchers they would put up in some of the fancy hotels. He probably met the local kind of gentry and bigwigs as well, but he wasn't really interested in socialising because when he came here, it was to work as such. But he would be here for maybe a few days, would travel on somewhere else, and the next thing he'd be on a, on a ship heading for Canada or for the United States to start setting up other stuff over there and then back over here again. 
So he was a man literally driven by his ambition, I suppose, and all the time kept the interest in what the work that he was doing and the, the importance of that work. Um, he had an incredible vision as well, because as well as doing all of the work that he was doing literally at that time, he was always looking to the future as well. And he came to Letterfrack, which is not too far from here, uh, where he set up uh, a, a kind of a, an experimental station where he was trying to do dual telegraphy, which meant that he was able to send and receive from the same place, because up to that, he wasn't able to do that. He had to turn off the sending or the receiving house and then switch it on to the sending and then vice versa. And that was taking time, which he didn't have time for. He had no time for wasting time. So he worked on that, but he also was planning all sorts of other ideas, including shortwave wave radio, which, of course, was what I suppose killed uh, Derry Gimlin in the end because he didn't need all this amount. But he actually quoted that in some stage in the not too distant future, we'd all have a communication system that we could hold in our hand and actually communicate directly with any part of the world. I mean, he was talking about mobile phones in the 1910, 1920, that kind of time. So constantly looking for new ideas, new ways of doing things. And I think, as I say, that was part of his his um, speciality, I suppose, was his drive that he had to try and make the company better all the time, but also to keep pushing himself. Uh, the company himself kind of all didn't always get on too well, the Marconi company. And in fact, a lot of the time he wasn't even involved with it. They kept the name, but he actually had kind of eventually gone back to, to Italy and left England and Ireland completely in the early nineteen, late 1920s, early 1930s. And he was working very much with the Italian government in creating a kind of a super um, radio station for them that they could touch part all over the world. Of course, he was also working with the Vatican and set up the Vatican Radio, which was one of the earliest international radio stations in the world. And of course, they have they have a very scattered audience. So he was wanting the Pope to be able to send out a message to every single country. So amazing the kind of things he was thinking of. His traveling was immense. I mean, I'm always amazed when I hear, you know, people talking about him that he was jet setter, but there was no jets in those days. It was all by sea. He travelled literally to every country in the world and everywhere he went he was treated as literally royalty. He was an amazing character and was honoured with uh, different prizes, Nobel Prizes, but also in kind of um, every prize in the United States. He went to China, he went to Japan, which he was winning prizes over there. The emperors and the kings were all presenting him with uh, awards. And everywhere he went they all wanted to be part of his system because they all realised that to to reach their... I don't mean subjects necessarily, but the, peop the scattered people, and we all know that in Ireland and Germany and France and all over the world, people were living in all over different parts of the countries, all over the continents, because I suppose that was the, the nature of the thing. So people were always trying to contact their own people in different countries, and by having a radio station, you could do that. So Marconi, as I say, was really the person who proved that and then was able to do it. He actually managed to get a full worldwide system that worked uh, incredibly well that nobody could believe that it actually could but Marconi had that in his mind all the time and from that I think radio became so popular I mean the United States was one of the first to take on a kind of against him in a way they kind of uh, had a radio system which would cover the whole country because obviously the United States is quite a large area so they were very happy to try and uh, use all of his work and he allowed that they obviously had to pay for the use of it but the, the radio part of it I think was really important for him as well he, he loved the idea of news 
and he loved the idea of music being able to move across the, the globe as well. And he was very much kind of pushing that, in, particularly in Italy, where they had one of the early uh, kind of radio uh, news uh, rooms where people would read the news, the international and national news. That was something quite unique as well, as you could imagine in those days when radio was relatively new. So as I say, I think he really had a great feel, a great grow for um, radio as a public um, broadcasting idea. I don't think he was looking at it as necessarily commercial. It was much, much more in the idea that this was something for service of mankind. But obviously, to, to get there, he also had to make sure the patents were covered and that he was getting his his funding to keep it going because it was quite a difficult thing to do otherwise. But I think Marconi and uh, radio go hand in hand. And, of course, he, uh, with us in Connemara Community Radio, we were extremely lucky in 1995 when we started our system that Princess Lettra Marconi, Marconi's daughter, actually basically cut the ribbon and switched us on, which was an amazing thing to have Marconi's daughter as our kind of patroness for that particular occasion. So Marconi and Connemara have always been kind of synonymous in a lot of people's minds. And as I say, the centre, the site here at Derry Gimla is a wonderful place for people to visit and to get an idea of the type of work that he was doing. But I think for people who have any interest in radio and communications, there's lots of books about Marconi which look into all the other aspects of what he was doing to to involve communications. And as I say, an amazing character and somebody who I would have loved to have met uh, personally, I must admit, because I think he would be quite a fascinating person to talk to, but a very interesting person. Now, as a nation of storytellers, we are well aware that not every good story has a happy ending. So Brindon tells us how with advances in technology and a desire for a more cost-effective process, the Derrigimla site became obsolete. Of course, as I mentioned, Marconi was always experimenting and of course the big thing for him was always to make everything smaller and more accessible so that he didn't have to travel to these areas like Connemara where he had to have huge sites. So he was all the time looking at making everything much more accessible for himself. And he started developing shortwave radio, which, of course, shortwave just needs basically a power source. And all you need is like a switch it into a, a plug and that's all you need. And he was able to bring it back closer and closer to London, where the, his main offices were. Uh, so during the 1920s, particularly the early 1920s, he started thinking about closing down Derry Gimla uh, because, as he said, he didn't need all of the the amount of money it cost him to to run this particular station. He, he didn't need that anymore. But there was a lot of local opposition to him closing down. It's a bit like nowadays when a factory closes down in a town or when a business is going to close down, the government and everybody else starts, you know, writing letters and we can't let this happen. So the same thing happened here and the local people and the local clergy all kind of came together and said, OK, please keep it open. And he did keep it open for a few more years. But then during the time of the Civil War um, and the War of Independence, there was a lot of kind of um, debate about this because during the 19, uh, the First World War, 1914-1918 war, this had been taken over by the British government as a war, uh, an important part of the war effort because they were able to keep this open and sending signals back and over to their allies. And so people felt uh, within the IRA that this had been then a British um, military base as such, which it had been for a short period of time, and that it was fair game for them to come and attack us. So it came out that uh, they, they came out and 
shot a few uh, shots into some of the equipment. Now, there's always stories that they burnt the whole place down. That didn't really happen. There may have been a small fire in one or two of the buildings, but nothing major. But as I say, Marconi had already at that stage decided he was moving out anyway. So that was the kind of catalyst for him to just say, OK, if that's the way you want to treat me, I'm gone. And he literally pulled out about 1923. The whole place was completely closed and um, it literally fell into disrepair. There was absolutely nothing left. Everything was sold for scrap. Um, the place just grew back over with bog and with, with rushes and everything. And you couldn't even find the site. And Marconi wasn't even thought of right up until the 1970s, 1980s again, when people started saying, oh, this was the site of the Marconi station. So th- that has started to develop again. But as I say, it's now, of course, such an important aspect of not just the tourism here, but for local people to get out and walk around. It's a lovely facility. But also that memory, I suppose, of it being used uh, and then abused as it was in the 1920s. We shouldn't forget that either, because, as I say, it also shows that the technology aspect of it and the fact that he had already developed and would have moved within a year or two anyway. As I said, he wasn't somebody who hung around for anything. If anything didn't suit him, he was gone. So I think the, the technology was the one that really closed down the site here. As I say, it was a, a, a sad blow to the area because so many people were employed here. Uh, and a lot of people obviously made uh, their money from being working on the site, but also for looking after the engineers and their families and things like that. So a lot of B&B type ideas or boarding houses for people. So it was really an important part of the economy of the area. But I suppose like a lot of these things, they eventually come to an end. The bog now serves a very different purpose, being preserved for biodiversity. And it's also a well-known fact that our bogs are capable of absorbing and storing large quantities of carbon emissions. Scroll West podcast coming to you from the west of Ireland. We feel and hear the vibrancy and passion of local radio in our towns and villages. There is a wealth of talent out there waiting to inform, entertain and engage us. Listen to Claire Morris Community Radio online around the world on ClaireMorrisCommunityRadio.ie. Your number one source of local news and information, Lockroy Community Radio, serving our community to bring us closer together. See LockroyCommunityRadio.com for more. You're tuned to Connemara Community Radio. And why wouldn't you? Keep in tune with Mayo. It's all you need. Mayo CRCFM. I spoke to Jerry Glennon from Midwest Radio, who explained the origin of local radio to me. And I know different individuals or different groups set up pirate radios for different reasons. But in our own context, what happened was our Paul Claffey, who has been with us from day one and continues to be our chief executive. In those early days, Paul ran a nightclub. It was called Midas Nightclub in Ballyhonest. And he was booking in his bands on a weekly basis and he was paying staff and he was paying rent and rates and all the facilities that had to be paid or all the bills that had to be paid. And the numbers were very, very small. So these bands would be booked. They'd have to pay a huge fee to these bands with the result that very few people came because they didn't realize the bands were in the nightclub in the first place. So one night anyway, he had finished with his band and he was feeling pretty dejected about it all. And a band member came from the late Chuck Owens and he said, Paul, why don't you set up one of those pirate radio stations? And Paul thought about it and he says, oh, I'm not so sure, Chuck. 
I had one of those a few years ago and it wasn't very successful and I'm not so sure. But anyway, Chuck said, well, look, think about it. And Paul thought about it, he ruminated about it, and he met a friend of his who was also in the music business from the disco perspective, that was Chris Carroll and Castlery, and they sat down and they thought about it and they said, why not, let's go for it. So they got a few pounds together at the time to set up, it was in medium wave and to a lesser extent FM, but particularly medium wave. They hired the services of a man from Cavan to build the medium wave transmitter, set up the medium wave transmitter, and on the 25th of November 1985, they began to broadcast the pirate, as we call it, Midwest Radio. And the idea behind it was that some of these bands who were going around doing the circuit, they also had records which were never played in RTE at the time. They weren't considered worthy of being played in RTE. So Paul's idea was that if these records started to be played on his radio station that he and Chris had set up, well, people would hear about the records, they would hear about the artists, and then they may just go and support these bands that they played in the venues around. He also had the idea that pirate radio, local radio, would be good for the local news, it would be good for the local information, and it would be company for people because this was pre-internet, pre-computers, in some cases maybe even pre-television for some people in the west of Ireland, that this would be the uh, form of communication for them. So that's how Midwest Radio got set up, ran very successfully. In early 1980, well no, mid-1988, the government recognised that there were a huge amount of these pirate radios transmitting on the FM frequency all across the country. And they said to themselves, we have to regularise this. We cannot have a situation where people are setting up radio stations willy-nilly. So they introduced in 88 what they called the Wireless and Telegraphy Broadcasting Act of 1988. And essentially then, that regularised radio in Ireland. And the rule of thumb that was used is that a population of roughly 100,000 people would pick up a radio station of their own. It would be able to apply. People would be able to apply. Groups or individuals would be able to apply for a licence. So in Mayo's case... At the time, the population was roughly 100,000. Mayo was able to secure a franchise in its own right. The same could be said for Galway. With Roscommon, it was a little bit different because they had a lesser population, so they were put together with Longford, and that became Shannon Side Radio. Uh, I think two or three groups, including ourselves, applied for the licence. The oral hearings were hard in March of 1989, and six weeks later, the good news came from the Broadcasting Authority, as it was known, the IRTC, actually, the Independent Radio and Television Commission, it was known as at the time, brought the good news that we were successful. So then we set about securing a building, securing studios, and opening our legal radio station, Midwest Radio, which happened on the 24th of July, 1989. And that's exactly how every local radio station started. It was out of pure necessity. Local people wanted to tell their own story and to preserve their music, song, history and heritage. People wishing to look local and expose the best of their locality, whilst at the same time raising issues requiring attention. As regards the popularity of the radio station, when we set up the pirate radio station, we certainly had a good idea that uh, it was going to be something that would be successful because there was one telephone line, I remember. We set it up in the back of a, a nightclub, in a dressing room, in a nightclub actually, in the back of Midas, the very nightclub that Paul ran. And we had one telephone line in one number. It was 09073169. And a couple of hours after the radio station was set up, it was amazing in the time really how word started to spread. Now, we had put out flyers and we had used word of mouth, but more or less immediately, uh, it began to spread, word began to spread. And just to illustrate that, I remember in 1987, we decided that we'd set up a transmitter like we had a transmitter covering the east of Mayo, but we had very little coverage in West Mayo. So 
we decided we would set up a transmitter on Ackle Island that would cover West Mayo. And we set that up on Ackle Island anyway in the grove in Bonacorry, right in the very heart of the island. And I actually happened to be there for that. And uh, it was unbelievable. About an hour after we set up the transmission, cars started to come from all directions. Bonacorry is in the very heart of Ackle. And we noticed cars coming from all directions to Bonacorry, kind of following the sound to wonder where had this come from. They couldn't believe that they had now got Midwest Radio. Others can then ask to be tuned into it, and it just took off like wildfire from there. So that was grand. When we closed then in 1988, everything closed, and was, we actually closed a night before we had to. We had a big concert uh, in the Midas nightclub, the said Midas nightclub, and that was the remarkable thing about that. We decided that we would close on the 30th of December, to be sure, to be sure, that we had done everything above board, everything was legal, we didn't want to dirty our copybook in any way. And so on the 30th of December, on that Friday night, we were going to go with a big goodbye concert, which we did. But the remarkable thing happened, we used to broadcast from 8 o'clock in the morning in those days. And from shortly after 8 o'clock that Friday morning, queues of people started to form outside the nightclub to get in to have one last look at the radio service that they had been listening to, only for three years, but had become such a part of their life. It was literally like a wake for a radio service. And people came all day long, and they cried, and they brought us little gifts, and they took little pictures of the studio, took little pictures of themselves in the studio, because I suppose at the back of their mind, they hoped, and we hoped that we'd get the license, but there was no guarantee that we would be successful. That's what happened. We had our closed-down concert. We set about organizing ourselves to apply for the franchise, go through the rigmaroles, they might say that you had to go through, then when we were successful, secure the building, secure the equipment set up. And that was a worry. We said when we set up again on the 24th of July in 1989, almost seven months had passed, would people have forgotten about us? Would they have gone back maybe listening to Radio 1 or Net RT 2 or whatever it might be? So there was some trepidation, even though we had picked up lots of publicity about the fact we were going back on air. And I remember we had graduated from one line to a system, a tele system, like an exchange system in the studio. And we opened on the 24th of July at 10 o'clock in the morning. And in this new system, you could see it was like a, uh, like a, oh, I suppose you would call it a telephonist system. You could see the lights light up as the lines began to get busy. And at about a minute past 10, every single one of those lines lit up. And they were lit up like a Christmas tree all day long. And thankfully, despite all the technology, those phones have not stopped ringing since. That's Jerry Glennon from Midwest Radio. Jerry gives us a great insight there into the eagerness and enthusiasm there was and still is for local radio. This passion runs through communities on every part of our island and will continue to do so because of her desire and ability to tell a story, communicate, advocate and entertain. of Galway, one thing that springs to mind is the Galway Arts Festival. Now Galway Bay FM has been an exponent of the arts for many years, bringing us all up to speed with all that is happening in the artistic world. All the songs you know, all the music you love. Think about my favourite sound. Galway Bay FM. This next clip provided to Scroll West by Galway Bay FM and very much appreciated. We hear Keith Finnegan speaking to John Crumlish, CEO of the Goway Arts Festival, and Paul Fahey, Artistic Director and Producer, giving us a flavour of what's coming up in the 2021 Goway Arts Festival. 
Now I have in my hand uh, a copy indeed of uh, this year's Galway International Arts Festival brochure running from the 28th of August to the 18th of September, later than usual. We spoke about that last week. And uh, the welcome note says, when we wrote our welcome note last year uh, for last year's programme, we never envisaged that we would start this year's introduction with the same sentiment, acknowledging yet again that it has been a very challenging year for everyone. It's been a very tough year for a great many people and therefore we feel both lucky and privileged to bring you this festival. And it goes on from there. On behalf of us all at uh, the festival team, we hope that you can join us for Galway International Arts Festival 2021, signed by John Grumlish and by Paul Fahey. John and Paul, good morning to you. Good morning, Keith. How are you? Thanks, Eddie, for joining us uh, today on the programme. It's it packed full of wonderful material, Paul Fahey. So it is. you put a huge amount of work into this. And again, it's great to see so many productions coming to town. Uh, thank you very much, Keith. Uh, that's a nice, nice reaction. Um, yeah, we've got a we've got a, um, a pretty packed program, all right. Um, and interestingly, like, we're we're spreading our, our all over the city and county, so we're really embracing um, spaces that people will be used to from the Black Box Theatre and the Town Hall Theatre and our beautiful new gallery the, uh, the, on on the on post site there in William Street. But we're also going outdoors this year, and we're out in a sheer um, with. Um, a fantastic outdoor show of um, Sam Beckett's uh, Happy Days with Company SJ and, and the Abbey Theatre uh, and the outdoors stunning back, backdrop um, out there. We're in Connemara with the fantastic John Gerard finally getting to um, complete our Mirror Pavilion installation out in the beautiful bog that is Derry Gimla. Yeah. Uh, that's going to be a truly spectacular setting. And we're in uh, in Bagan Hound with Phoebe and we're out in the uh, kind of valley with the interface and we're at Carmore Airport. Um, with 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 Branner, so we're 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 all over the place. You are, and do you know I'm delighted because that Branner show that uh, you you've just mentioned there, again, it's called Shrush and the Changa, So it is. It's based in uh, Galway Airport. I saw it during 2020, and then lockdown came in. So fair play to you for uh, taking it back on board and reigniting it. Really thrilled to do that because you know, like for the, not as a huge amount of people got to see that show. Well, actually, I think about a thousand people, people did, but that's not, tens of thousands of people. Thousands of people need to see that show, Keith. It's really spectacular. Mark McLaughlin and his team of Banner have really created something extraordinary out there. It was originally commissioned by Goy twenty twenty, and obviously the rug was pulled from under them like everybody else. And that show has been when when COVID happened, and that show has been sort of mothballed out in the out in the terminal building at the airport uh, for the last fifteen months. Um, so it's great to be able to. Uh, get audiences back in there. It's been brilliant working with Brenner on, on, on uh, reviving the show um, and uh, it's a truly spe- it's, it's really incredible. You have to see it to believe it. It's kind of an immersive experience. You walk all this through all this series of rooms and you, and you learn the story of the, of the Irish language. It's beautifully told and it's gorgeously designed and brilliantly performed. They're, Brenner are really wonderful so we're thrilled to be working with them. They are and to be honest uh, I mean it just reminded me of something really kind of from from a movie or otherwise, but it's done so well and the story is told. And I learned, I thought I knew my history of Ireland, um, but I learned so much from them. Um, and it was just magic. Yeah. There was only 10 of us in the tour. Uh, I think it's 10 people that are still doing in the tour. 10 people per show. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's uh, so there's, there's a good bit of that. We we're obviously working within within uh, government guidelines and with, with, you know, within the kind of restrictions we have to adhere to, obviously, for, for the safety of, of, of all of our audiences and our artists in mind. We actually have a lot of kind of... Um, Experiences this year, Keith, that are kind of slightly more unusual, like what you described there with Brana, where 10 people are, are promenading their way through that show. But we also have um, 
Uh, we've got uh, the Dunbar Warehouse coming from London with an amazing kind of audio, immersive audio theatre experience um, of a show called Blindness, which is voiced by Juliet Stevenson, that very well-known actor. Um, and it's based on the, a novel by Jose Saramaggio. And it's about what would happen if, if the, the world kind of went blind. So like very kind of very very current for now in terms of like a pandemic sort of arriving, not that I'm saying this is a pandemic, but in terms of like something taking over the world and kind of dominating a life, it's an extraordinary piece. And then Arasha Reach, which is a beautiful show by Brew Theatre from the great James Reardon, Gal- Galway Man, um, is a virtual reality experience. So again, it's an unusual way of experiencing a show. You put on a set of goggles and you watch our virtual virtual reality headset goggles, do you hear me? Um, and you experience this incredible telling of, of beautiful stories of, of, of immigration and return. Um, and we have up close and personal shows then with an amazing um, artist called Luke Murphy who's originally from Cork and we're in the Nuns Island Theatre with him doing a piece called Volcano and that's just for an audience of eight people a really, really incredibly beautiful, beautiful piece. So a lot of unusual ways of kind of audiences to experience things whether they're there live in person or whether they're experiencing things from home because uh, our festival is very much a hybrid festival this year of both in-person live events mixed with live streamed and view on demand so you can you can have a good experience at the festival digitally so whether you're sitting in in in, in Galway or somewhere else in Ireland or you could be across the world in New York or Australia or Asia or wherever you are we would be hopefully we'll be welcoming a lot of new audiences um, this year and including for our first two great live streams I just want to mention amongst the, the PACT programme one is that of Medicine which is our um, our new end of Walls production with Donald Gleeson Claire Barrett Eva Duffin and John Caprio and it's a co-production of Landmark Productions we workshopped it last year an incredible piece Full Bells and Whistles production this year it's going to open in Edinburgh come to the back box for live shows we're doing four live streams from the 15th, 16th, 17th and 18th of September and they're going to be amazing because it'll be directed for the camera for the, for, for the live stream performances um, and it's going to be a really, really, really special special thing and then we also have live streams uh, from St. Nicholas's Church on the 3rd of September um, we're partnering with other voices um, for the part of the Courage series with um, an incredible lineup, two great Galway musicians called the Galway Band New Dad and the wonderful Anna Malarkey and then Tola McKay who kind of burst onto the scene with her really incredible version of N17 over the Christmas period and then topping off with Susan O'Neill based here and Mick Flannery who's this beautiful album of oh. duets together mm. so that's going to be an extraordinary thing so live streaming will have a, will have a, a strong element um, across the programme and, and as will view on demand or to enjoy things later on like from our first talks to various other experiences throughout the throughout the programme. Scroll West podcast coming to you from the west of Ireland. Canvara FM, your local community radio station. Now, if you have a concern in your local community, your local radio station can gather momentum, shine a light on the issue and can even be instrumental in solving the issue. In this next clip, we hear how Seamus Gallagher and Christina Connolly were influential in resolving an issue through their programme, Canvara Reporting, on Canvara FM. The programme itself, Canvara Reporting, stemmed from a local campaign that was set up in 2018 Galway County Council and the Transport Authority of Ireland were widening the road between Kilcolgan and Kinvara as it's a very busy thoroughfare with a lot of tourists, bus and traffic, particularly during the summer. And it needed to be upgraded and also cycle lanes put in place. However, 
community were very annoyed when they heard that the stone walls on each side were being removed and replaced with timber fencing. And indeed, the first show it was played in other parts of the country where similar campaigns were commencing. As a result of that campaign, common sense was restored and Galway County Council and indeed the Transport Authority agreed to provide stone walls as part of the new development and they can be seen today if you travel from uh, Kilcolgan to Canvara. So we feel, Christine and myself feel, that our contribution in raising the issue on Canvara Community Radio was very important. So as a result, we continued with the show and we cover current affairs, both international, national and local. And for instance, something like Brexit, we covered extensively, but we always had a local dimension. For instance, Christina would interview a local fisherman as fish were important aspect in the Brexit negotiations. So I hope that this gives you a feel for the importance of community radio in highlighting local issues. Scroll West podcast coming to you from the west of Ireland. Where people believe in the future, they actually create the future. The Golden Mile is the equivalent to the tidy towns and it's for rural communities. It's getting a lot of attention at the moment and I think it's important that it does. Community matters. Matters to you, matters to all of us. Tune in on Tuesdays from 7 to 8. Good evening, listeners, and you're all very welcome to another edition of Community Matters here on Connemara Community Radio. There isn't that much light at the end of the tunnel yet. Do something about it instead of turning up at these meetings and making promises and then breaking them. Community Matters. The soul of the community is reflected in the local radio station. And at the heart of every local radio station is the community. Scroll West podcast coming to you from the west of Ireland. Thank you for tuning in to the Scroll West podcast. Many thanks also to all of our contributors. To Brendan O'Scannell from the Clifton and Connemara Heritage Society and to all of the radio stations who took part. Midwest Radio, Connemara Community Radio, Goway Bay FM, Clare Morris Community Radio, Kinvara Community Radio, Castlebar Community Radio and Lockray Community Radio. I hope you enjoyed the content from this podcast. We will talk to you again soon. Our next podcast is going to be on the ancient craft of basket making. We'll travel to Connemara and the Aran Islands to meet the basket makers. Thank you.